Do me a favor if you can and track down a Bible. Get with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're actually going to jump around the scriptures today. Um, so I'm going to take you all over the place. We'll put the verses up on the screen so you can track with us that way. But 1 Peter chapter 2 is a good place to start. We are going through a series right now where we're looking at the core values of Central. We're um, taking these phrases that our lead pastor, David Clark, has been using for a number of years, and we're looking at each one of those phrases each week, and we're saying, okay, here's something that we value as a church. So this is true at all of our sites, all of our campuses. Uh, these are things that, that we consider to be a big deal and that make us who we are. And so last week, we talked about how Jesus is everything. We want to be the kind of church that focuses on the centrality of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. This week, we're going to look at worship. And the phrase that David Clark has used for a number of years, and he's, you know, even in recent weeks, he talked about changing it up a little bit, but he talks about how we do worship. And he uses the phrase incarnational worship, which means enfleshed. So when Jesus came to earth, he was in flesh, God in flesh. And so there's this relatability about him. He literally knows what it's like to walk in our shoes because he, is, he, he shared in that entire human condition and experience. And so we want our worship services to be relatable in that sort of way. But, but we also want our, our worship services to be intentional in all kinds of different ways. And so this morning we're talking about being intentional with the way that we gather. And I'm going to give you five different things that really kind of get at the heart of who we are uh, as a campus and who we are as a church. So um, we launched our campus in 2017, February of 2017. And by the fall of that year, we were beginning to understand our identity as a church family. And so we actually did a survey so that we could hear the voices of people from our church. And we asked a couple of just kind of uh, thought-provoking questions. And then we looked at the themes that emerged. And one of the themes that emerged through that survey was the way in which we do worship services. And it, it was pretty consistent that a lot of people said, we really appreciate the worship at the McChesney Park campus. And, and there are different things about it that people really appreciate. And so let me just give you kind of a, a snapshot of some of the comments. One, one individual from our church said, they really like the uncomplicated style. They like that worship is intentionally simple, that we do things in a way that, um, that, that really are accessible. Some people talk about our worship being authentic, uh, that there's this raw element to our, to our worship. And so worship is something that, I, that our people really appreciate. And I just want to kind of pull back the curtains and show you some of the different aspects that go into the way in which we design and think about our, our church services. So I've got five different aspects. Hopefully we'll have time for them, uh, but we'll just work our way right through them. I chopped a couple of them off, and so maybe they'll show up in upcoming weeks, but uh, here are five different things that, that inform the way that we gather together. Number one, our worship, what we intend to do is to be God-centered. God-centered. When we gather together, one of the questions, one of the key questions that we might ask is, is what we are planning to do glorifying to God? So we design our services and we ask that sort of question, is the stuff that we plan, will that be pleasing and satisfying 
to God himself. At the end of the day, we really want to be sure that what we're doing is honoring and pleasing to God. In fact, that's a part of what worship really is. Our English word worship comes from an older word that, that was, it was put like this. It was worth ship. You can hear what that means even as you listen to it. Worth meaning the value and then ship meaning the participation in or the expression of. And so what we're doing when we worship is we are participating in declaring the value of God. We are articulating this reality of who God is and what he's like. And so we are worshiping God, but, but what we want then is for our services to be God-centered. So let me show it to you in 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter's writing a letter to the scattered churches, and he's describing who they are. So you've got identity on the front end, and then he describes what we are to do. So we are these kinds of people as the church, and here's what we do as a result of that. So let's listen to it. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. If you're wondering kind of the identity of the people of God, you've got it here in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. It's telling us this incredible reality that we are God's. We're a chosen people. We have this kingly priesthood that we represent God to his creation. We're mediators of God to this watching world. We're a holy nation. We're set apart for him and we're God's special possession. So that's who we are. But now look at what we're to do then. It goes on to say that, so it's basically saying so that you're this, here's who you are, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are the people of God, God's special possession, that you might worship him. You declare his praises. You express the awesome reality of who he is and what he's made you to be. And you declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That verse right there reminds us of the God-centered nature of worship. We are who we are because of God. We're called then to worship him for what he has done on our behalf. Now, learning to be God-centered in worship is something that I came into kind of late in my Christian experience. Uh, I was a believer during the heyday of the 90s, and I was a leader of a, a ministry starting in the early 2000s, and the key word back then was relevant. And what it felt like and what kind of the Christian subculture would say is, God isn't relevant to people anymore. And so one of the things that we tried to do was make them cool again, which I learned, and I hope you guys understand, God didn't need my help being cool or relevant. And so I was doing an action sports ministry, trying to reach the subculture of the skate culture and wake culture and snow culture and all these different things. And I was trying to make God cool. But then I came into this understanding of the glory of God, the God-centeredness of worship. God doesn't need my help to be relevant to anybody. And when that began to happen, it was a transforming, paradigm-shifting thing in my Christian experience. I began to see the holiness of God, the glory of God. I began to relate to God in a different way. I'll give you just a snapshot of it from Isaiah chapter 6. I'm not going to show you all the verses there, but um, I'm going to show you, uh, I'll paraphrase it, and you can just track along with it. In Isaiah chapter 6, you've got 
a prophet of God, a religious individual who has this experience with the glory of God. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then he describes seraphim, these angels who have three sets of two wings, these angels that are in the presence of God flying around. And he says they're, they're flying around with two of their wings and then they're covering their faces with two of their wings and they're covering what, what R.C. Sproul says, their creatureliness, their feet with two of their wings. So they're, they're shielding themselves from the glory of God and they're crying out to, to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the earth is full of his glory and the threshold of the temple quakes. And that picture that we see in Isaiah chapter six is the God-centeredness of reality. And this is what worship ought to look and feel like. It ought to be one of those experiences where you're just devastated. That's what happens to Isaiah. He says, woe to me, I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the glory of God. So it is a devastating reality that leads to our repentance because we begin to rightly see ourselves in light of the holiness of God and our frailty. It's also an experience when you step into worship like that, where you experience God's provision for you. One of the angels takes tongs and picks up a coal and touches it to the lips of Isaiah, a, a, a symbolic activity that's representing God's atonement for him. Yes, you're right. Your lips are unclean, but I'm going to do something for you to make you fit. You are unfit to be in my presence and in my glory, but I'm going to make a provision for you. So that's a part of God-centered worship. You appropriate the work of God in your own life. And then finally, it's, a, it's an event that actually calls you into um, purpose and meaning and engagement with the world. Remember what happens in Isaiah chapter six, God speaks and he says, who will go for us? And Isaiah, Isaiah says, here I am. He volunteers himself. Here I am. Send me. So when you experience worship like that, it radically changes you. We want our worship to be God-centered. One of the best compliments that I ever received in ministry, we used to do these things called um, student takeover. And what we do, I was a, a youth pastor, and I don't know if Ellie remembers this, but we would, we, a few times a year, we would do these student takeovers where we'd bring our student band up and we'd um, have a choir full of a lot of our kids and I would preach and we'd take care of all the elements of the, of the service there. And, um, and so we're doing that. And, you know, one of the reasons why we, we did that was to kind of highlight the youth group, but I always took it as an opportunity just to declare the bigness of God. And one of the compliments that came after one of those services, is it, I just tucked it away. It's in my file of encouragement. And um, the compliment came from a dad. I'm not sure how involved he was with our church, but he was there watching his kid on stage and being a part of that worship service. And then he said this. He said, that was the closest to God I've felt in over 10 years. So he wasn't saying, I really like those songs you guys picked. I really liked your message. I really, no, no. He just said, whatever happened there, that felt like I was dealing with God. That's what we're after when we think about 
our services. We want them to be God-centered. Secondly, we want our services to be others-oriented. Others-oriented, or another way to put it would be missional. When we gather for worship, we want to be mindful of the fact that our worship needs to help other people become worshipers. Um, so we, we want to think about when we get together and we're doing our services, we are thinking about those who are not yet present. And what we do here actually helps us to engage with the world so that more and more people would become worshipers. Let me show this to you from Psalm 67. Psalm, the Psalm book is really the worship directory for the people of God. So they have this Psalter, all these different Psalms, and Psalm 67 reminds us that when we're worshiping, one of the things that we need to be doing is thinking about the fact that worship isn't just for us. It's for the nations. It's for the world. It's for others. So let me just read three verses from Psalm 67. It goes like this. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples with equity, equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. Part of our worship is helping other people join in that worship. When we gather, one of the things we want to do is be oriented toward others. So we're thinking about neighbors and friends and even faraway nations that don't yet know the saving love of God in Jesus Christ. And we worship with the intent of being accessible to them and also inspiring us to be engaged in that, in that activity of proclaiming the worth of God to the ends of the earth. So our worship services need to be others oriented. And if we don't think about other people hearing worship, I don't think our worship is complete. I'm going to share with you an insight from C.S. Lewis, and, and um, he, he makes it a very important observation in his, in his book, The Weight of Glory. So listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He's talking about the fact that unless our worship is expressed and received by other people, it's not yet complete. Here's what he says. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The, the delight is incomplete till, is, till it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he or she is, or to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur. And then to have to keep silent because the people with, with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. Or to hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with. Do you, do you hear what C.S. Lewis is noting? You don't even experience the fullness of what you're worshiping until you express it. It's incomplete until you have an avenue or channel through which you're able to say, look at how awesome this thing is. And I'm trying to take it even a step further and say, I don't think that our worship is complete until other people are on the receiving end of it. Not only is it incomplete until it's expressed, but when we express it, we want people to share with us in it. And so we want our worship to be designed 
for other people. So when we do our gatherings, we think through how does what we're doing here inform how we can help other people come to know God? Do we design our services in a way that's accessible? We'll come to that more in a few minutes. But then we also want everything that we do here to kind of do that Psalm 67 thing that's kind of reminding us this is for all the peoples of the earth. What we're doing in worship, we want other people to share in. And so each week we send you, we deploy you. We say, you're not dismissed. You can't just go home and sit on the couch. You've got work this week. You're the church. Go and be the church. You're sent, you're scattered. We've gathered together, we've worshiped. Now take that worship into the community. Express the glory of God, make known, declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Articulate that so that other people would hear that and receive that and also worship that God. So, so we want our worship to be God-centered. We want it to be others-oriented. How on earth are we going to do that? We design our services, thirdly, to be word-driven. We want God to speak. Now, the only way that I know to be confident that that happens is to populate our services with his word. We want God to speak, and so we try to do everything that we can to fill the services with the voice of God. Not our voices, but the voice of God. We'll use our voices, but we want God to hijack them in order that he would actually allow his voice to come through. One of my favorite bands, uh, it's called Page CXVI. They're a group, it's, I think it's just you know two people, but they, they remaster old hymns. And they call themselves Page CXVI because in an old version of the Chronicles of Narnia on Page CXVI, whatever Roman numeral that ends up being, um, it's the page where Aslan is singing. And, and, and Lewis is describing Aslan, the king, King Jesus, the, the representative figure of Jesus himself singing. And what he's doing in that activity of singing is actually creating the new heavens and the new earth. He, Aslan is singing and the newness is coming in. The voice of the king is going forward. And just like in creation, God spoke and things came into existence. Well, now we believe that Jesus speaks and new things are coming into existence. Things are being remade in his image. And so we want our church to look like that. We want the voice of the risen Christ to come through loud and clear. And the way that we do that is we believe that this is his word. And if we want to hear his voice, we open this thing and we read it out loud. And we trust that God, by his word, will communicate his voice to his people. So this week I was on a, a phone call and I was talking to somebody and we were thinking through some different ideas about, um, you know, podcasts and content that we can do for our church. And I was mentally critiquing myself and I was just annoyed by me, uh, by my own voice. I was misspeaking. I was saying words uh, the wrong way. I was miscommunicating ideas and I was just frustrated. And so then this week I'm, I'm comparing what is my voice like in comparison to the voice of the risen Lord and Savior? I much prefer his voice. He's much better and much more capable at using his voice to accomplish his purposes. Let's look at Psalm 29. I'm going to put it up on the screen. But Psalm 29 reminds us of the power of the voice of God. Verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. 
Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. We're, we're, this is worship stuff, isn't, isn't it? This is him telling us, here's what we're doing here. We are worshiping. Here's why. Verse three, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon, this place of renown for their timber. And he's saying the voice of the Lord strips them bare. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. We want our services to be so full of the voice of the risen Savior that we walk out of here staggered, saying glory. We didn't just hear some dude sharing his thoughts and opinions. We didn't just sing songs that we like. We came into contact with the risen Lord and we heard his voice and we are staggered. So how can we do that? We design our services with his voice in mind. We open the scriptures. We read from them. I know, you know, we're, we're living in a digital age and you might be core. What are you doing, man? Do you think that anyone has the attention span to sit and listen to these archaic words? And my answer is absolutely. The voice of the Lord accomplishes his purposes. We want our services to be full of the voice of God. So that means we do things in a certain way. We're mindful of certain threats. We, we, we obviously have a job to communicate. I have a job to preach. We have a job to sing together, but we're also aware of some of the hangups that can be in that. We can, we can use uh, charisma or, or compelling speeches or um, persuasion or charm or being impressive and all of that None of those things are bad in and of themselves, but they have to be used in service to the word of God. Otherwise, they become a counterfeit. And people can walk away being like, wow, I really like that speaker. I really love those songs. In music, we can use crescendos and decibels and beautiful arrangements. And again, none of that is intrinsically wrong. We want to use that, but those are meant to complement the word of God. We allow those things to kind of complement the voice of God. So here's how Paul puts it when he writes a church in, in Thessalonians. He says, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe the word of God is able to do the work of God in our church. All right, number four, we want our services to be seeker-sensible. Seeker-sensible. We want what we do in this service, I already said we want it to be others-oriented, but here's another aspect of that. When people attend our services, we don't want it to be confusing. We want it to be understandable. We want it to be intelligible for them. We want for people who are far from God to be welcomed into this experience with us, and we want them to be able to track with us. 
We want to practice what I would say is hospitality. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But when we do our services, we want to describe everything that we're doing along the way so that anyone could come and be a part of it. Um, Seeker sensitive is the language that I like because it helps us to understand that we're trying to make it sensitive to the seeker. There's another way uh, that people have talked about church services before called seeker um, seeker sensitive. I'm sorry. That's the, the language that some people used. And that was what they were using to describe designing the entire service for people who aren't yet Christians. And that's not what I'm talking about here because I don't think that achieved what they hoped to achieve. What I'm talking about here is designing the service to be seeker sensible for it to be something that everyone can come into and, um, and understand what's going on. Let me show it to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul's writing to a church. He's dealing with division in that church, different spiritual giftedness, different leaders that they're gravitating toward. And he speaks to this church and he, he begins to outline what his preference is for the gathered church. And it's a little bit complex and we're not going to untangle all the nuances of the argument, but I want to show you the main point that he's making. He's making a comparison between two spiritual gifts. One is called tongues and the other is called prophecy. And he defines them early in the chapter. You can look at it. Tongues is a language that is um, between the communicator and God. So, so it's edifying to that person, but other people don't understand it. It's a, it's a different kind of speech. Prophecy, on the other hand, he defines as communication using the ordinary tongue of the individuals that other people can hear, and it's intelligible to them. They understand it. They're using normal human communication. And so he says, I would rather, this is verse 19, in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. He's saying, he's making this argument there that his preference is for designing the, the church service so that it is accessible to as many people as possible and beneficial to as many people as possible. And, and then he goes on to describe what this will do for somebody who is a seeker. Look at verses 24 and 25. He says, if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying. Remember, prophesying, speaking normal human words that people understand. He says, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. you do you understand what, he's, what this argument is then? He is saying, I prefer that in church, we do everything in a way where it is accessible, where it's understandable. Obviously, he loves other spiritual gifts. He's a champion of the gift of tongues. But he says, in the church, when you're gathered together, my preference is for things to be understandable, for it to be able to build people up. Now, I just tried to do exact, I tried to illustrate exactly what I'm talking about by taking a complex idea and simplifying it. Now, whether or not I accomplish that is yours to be judged. But the idea is when we gather, we want to communicate in a way that helps people know what's going on so that they might have that experience of falling down in worship, exclaiming, God is really among you. So 
We have to do church in a way that's orderly. That's one of the implications that Paul goes on to express in that letter. It says church ought to be done in an organized and orderly way. Um, it needs to be understandable when we're doing things, we should be explaining them. So if you're bringing a guest with, you can obviously be leaning over saying, here's what we're doing right now. But it's also important that everything that we're doing is actually helping them understand. Oh, I understand what you're doing, why you're doing it. And I understand whether or not I should also do that. So we want to, we want to design our, our services in that way. Here's how I want you to consider it. Think about it like hospitality. When you invite somebody into your home, if you want them to enjoy the experience, you're trying to be hospitable. You're trying to think through what don't they know? Well, I, want, I want them to feel welcome here. I, I want to do everything that I can to try to put them at ease, to make them comfortable, to try to show them where things are, to try to explain what we're doing. If, if there are unique things that we do as a family, if my kids are inviting them to a dance floor to dance, I want to warn them about that. My kids are going to do this. They're going to want to play tag. That's totally fine around here. Hospitality is the thing where you're saying, if you're coming into my environment, I'm going to do everything that I can to try to make you feel like you belong here. That's what we should do as a church. All right, finally, number five, we want our, our worship to be Christ exalting. This is the last point that I've got. I'm going to go from um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So we want our services to be Christ-exalting. Here's, here's what Paul says to the letter of the church in Corinth. He says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. He's kind of rejecting human rhetoric and persuasion. He's saying, look, I'm not embracing this communication tactic that everyone else is doing, trying to impress you with myself. But instead, I came with humility. Look at this. Verse two, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Again, this is kind of philosophy of ministry stuff. What do we want people to really have their hope in? We want them to have their hope in Jesus Christ crucified and risen. So even as a preacher, I've got marching orders right here that I don't want to fill our services with things that would try to persuade you of how charming I am or how compelling I might be or how persuasive I could be. I actually want to simplify my message and have weakness be on display, my own weakness on display, my own trembling before you and just say that here's what I'm trying to do. My preaching and my message are not wise and persuasive, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power, a, a communication of the testimony about God, Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Our worship needs to exalt him. We want everything that we do together to aim at him, the person and work of Jesus Christ, so that you walk away with his name on your lips. You walk away with the confidence of what he's done for you at Calvary, that you would exalt him, that you would lift him high as Lord and Savior. So when we talk about our values, one of the values that we have as a church is intentional worship. We will continue to meet together with, with all the, 
restrictions and limitations that COVID might present for us. We will do what we can to gather together in the appropriate formats. And when we do that, and as we design that, we believe that God can use these moments in profound ways, that God can use the gathered church worshiping together to accomplish great things. He can change you. He can transform you. He can stagger you so that you walk away saying glory, saying Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. So we value intentional worship. Let's pray. Lord, right now we ask with gratefulness, um, I guess we're just expressing our gratefulness, God, for the way that you work. We're grateful that you've called us, that you're redeeming us, that you're making us new. We're grateful, God, that you've given us this high calling of declaring your praises, the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into wonderful light, Lord. We are worshipers, and so help us to do that well. Thank you for the way that we can leverage our week-by-week gatherings, and I do pray, Lord, that it would result in our worship of you and, and also result in other people coming to know you and worshiping you too. So Lord, have your way, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.